welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. Everything is design. Everything. Paul Rand said this to a bunch of students at Arizona State University back in 1995. That was a year before he died. Everything is Designed is the name of a survey of Rand's work, which is in an exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York. And Jessica, you and I were just up there last week on a panel discussion, one of several that the museum is going to hold in honor of this exhibition. And the people on the panel were each asked to pick a particular Paul Rand piece and talk about it. What did you pick? I picked the Color Forms logo from, I think, 1959. Hey, describe what that looks like. Well, first of all, describe what Color Forms are. So Color Forms, to the new generation that might not have grown up on them as I did, were invented by a couple uh, in the mid-50s who were art students and didn't have a lot of money and found this kind of pliable, slightly stretchy plastic that could be made very inexpensively in different colors and started to cut shapes out of it and invented this thing that was, in fact, before stickers. Uh, it was a slightly um, uh, sticky plastic, so if you put it on a coated piece of cardboard, you could actually make a picture stay in place. And they invented color forms initially. Uh, I think the, the classic color forms is still in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, just pieces of geometry, squares and circles and triangles and primary colors. And over time, the color forms company uh, made all sorts of licensing deals with Hanna-Barbera and Disney and TV shows and toy companies and created all kinds of different uh, color forms based on different stories and things that kids could identify with. I just love these as a child. So, And, th- and this is really just uh, like the, the, the most analog possible toy in the world. They're literally just thin pieces of plastic that stick to kind of a shiny board and you just pick them up and move them around. Uh, so you pick them up and move them around. <laughs> you could put them on windows too and on glass. And you, you can put it on your face, as I recall, on your brother's face that, even yes. more excitingly. <laughs> So Rand did this wonderful um, uh, logo uh, for color forms, which was really pieces of geometry. It's uh, circles and squares, and it's a face, and it's sort of like a little uh, kind of truncated toy soldier-looking thing. They've never redesigned it uh, in in those many years. I think now it's 56 years old, this logo, and um, it's still colorful, and it still represents color forms. I think that the logo has endured much longer than color forms have endured, or I wouldn't be spending the first five minutes of our podcast this week talking about (laughs) what a color form is. Um, but of course, they gave it this great name. They were, they were colorful and they were forms of geometry. So hence color forms. And um, one of the things that was actually quite amusing in the evening was uh, listening to the panel, which included George Lois and Steve Heller and... Chris Pullman. Chris Pullman, right. And Danny Lewandowski, who is a designer from Atlanta, who has taken it upon himself to make the world's premier... Uh, be-all, end-all, site for all things Rand. The panel would vacillate between real admiration for Rand, the designer, and occasional admissions of the fact that he could be a difficult man. He was very irascible, very, you know, uh, 
uh, of few words, tended to be have a gruff demeanor, uh, lovable inside, they would say. And, um, and, and prone to the ex-cathedra statement, I would say. You know, sort of great pronouncements that you couldn't disagree with. Even saying everything is designed to students back in 1995, which may sound to contemporary audiences like a very opening, kind of open-minded thing to say, I think was meant to, to be quite the opposite. I think it was meant to say, this is what it is. I have said it. You can quote me. When you see the show, it consists of all these pieces, uh, um, like the Color Forms logo and like the work he did going back decades to the late 30s through the 40s or the 50s when he was deep in the world of post-war Madison Avenue doing ads for hats and cigars and booze and cars and bringing to all those things this really sort of like um, sensibility that was part Bauhaus avant-garde and part just children's storybook playfulness and i think do as you he think that's why yeah. i'm sorry do you think that's why he's still being talked about and revered in the way that he is not just the exhibition which is a marvelous exhibition and should be seen it's up till i think july 19th is it the mid-july yeah. uh, but do, why do you think we still care i mean he's been he's been gone uh, rest in peace paul rand he's been gone since 1996 that's an awfully long time and here people are talking about i mean that panel discussion we did the room was packed yeah yeah it was standing room only and uh, people you know there were old people young people all kinds of uh Students lining the stairs. Yeah, Why yeah, do you yeah. care? Why do you think? Um, I think part of it has to do with the fact that he managed to um, to be so versatile and kind of have so many reinventions of himself. I think unintentionally. I don't think he sort of like uh, sought to kind of redefine himself constantly. But he managed to evolve with the times and to think that um, – you know, he managed to, within a 10-year period, design this Color Forms logo on one hand with a, smi- with a happy, smiley face on it and these bright geometric shapes, and at the other end of uh, the same 10-year period would go on to design the IBM logo and then ultimately design, you know, the, the logo for Steve Jobs' next computer company and the ultimate, nearly at the end, the Enron logo. And one of the fun games to play in the exhibition is to sort of once you get over the, the shock of the contrast between one of these, um, you know, ads for uh, Dubonnet or El Producto cigars at one end to, you know, the standards manuals for IBM at the other end, which seems so different, uh, it's fun to actually see what they actually have in common, and you'll find that they have a lot in common. They do have a lot of common, and I think one of the things he always said about himself, and it comes back to color forms, but it certainly applies to many other identity programs, is this idea of turning to geometry to solve the problem. So if you look at ABC, if you look at IBM, Westinghouse, UPS, color forms, even Enron and Next, they all really participate in the same kind of visual understanding or vernacular. And and you picked something I thought was really uh, compelling because not only did you pick it, you had an example of it in your hands. And that was one of the classic Rand, uh, we used to call them Bibles, this idea that you, <laughs> he would do a design, he would have a design idea, and he would sell the idea by writing a little book. Can yeah, you talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about the book that you had and yes. why you chose it? Um, Suppose, I, I, as I understand it, Rand was um, so shy and considered himself such a hesitant showman that um, the way he preferred to present his work was by writing everything down, illustrating it appropriately, binding the result into a book, going to the meeting, and then simply sliding the book across the table, sitting there, I 
I imagine quietly uh, while the um, client turned the pages, available to answer any questions or to clarify anything that wasn't already clarified by the book, which wasn't, the books are very clear. And that would be sort of his, what we today call a quote-unquote deliverable. And the one I had is uh, something that um, I was lucky enough to meet him, I was lucky enough to ask him for a copy of it, and I was lucky enough to have him say, yes, uh, I'll send you one, was the book that he actually had prepared for Steve Jobs for Next, his computer company that he founded um, after he uh, was exiled from Apple the first time around and upon which he was he would go on to build the Apple that we know now, t- that we know today. And um, the book is just so beautifully simple and so clear. And it's it's interesting because it's it really shows and how... It smells of rubber cement. Yeah, and, and it just shows how... <laughs> It shows how he worked so uh, ingeniously because he would be able to um, really only give – he would tell the client that you only get one solution. Supposedly you get one solution that costs $100,000, but let's not get into money just now. Uh, He notoriously showed one solution, and if someone said, but I want to see more solutions, Jessica, what did he say? You want another solution? Ask another designer. There you go. So um, what a great way to be and what a great way to kind of make sure that the time you were spending on your work was properly uh, parceled out. So he would show supposedly one solution, which in fact uh, this next book leads up to the last solution, which is his final recommendation. But along the way, he kind of shows a bunch of interesting permutations of those four letters, you know, letters that if you write them in all capitals are all straight letters. Um, But if you make the E lowercase, you get a nice round letter. The E being lowercase could stand for education, could stand for entertainment, could stand for excitement or experience. Uh, and so that became the little visual mnemonic he embedded in the, uh, in the mark. And you know, I mean, what's so great about it, uh, design students might recognize this as what we today call a process book. Yeah. And a process book, for lack of a better explanation to non-designers, is something that actually shows everything you thought and what you kept in and what you kept out. It shows your editorial editorial thinking. It shows how the sort of trajectory of an idea from something that is maybe sloppy or multifaceted to something that gets much clearer. This is a process book that is so tuned to a, an absolute level of perfection. So even though you're, you're sort of going along with it and it says it could be this, it could be that, you know that he knew where he was going. And I found yeah. myself wondering and looking at it and, and, and looking at many things that he wrote, how, how much was on the cutting room floor? Because it's such an elegant series of solutions. And I think the other thing that I would say is that these things have stood the test of time. Now, is it because people are afraid to go after the great Paul Rand and redesign his color forms logo? Or is it that the stuff really is timeless. And then if that's the answer, to what extent was he right that basing these things on geometry made them highly recognizable, classical in proportion, elegant as solutions, meaningful and capable of being put on the side of a bus or emblazoned on a t-shirt? I mean, he really, in a sense, was was kind of prescient. I mean, he really had 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 a great way of looking forward and understanding what things needed to be. And your word deliverable, Michael, I think is is really apt because not only was it the completion of the task that he had been asked to do and that he commanded the lovely fee of $100,000 for, it was a party favor. He left it behind. There was one. In your case, there was two, and you got the other one. But, you know, it wasn't like a whole, you know, here are the files and buy the fonts and it's really complicated and here's my project manager. You got Rand and you got the book. 
despite the seeming kind of uh, distancing element of I will sit here while you page through a book, there's something really kind of naked about it, you know, just sitting there while you read what in effect is the his diary of the project. So I can really see why it was so seductive and so compelling. Um, yet yeah. I think, um, you know, the cutting room floor, I think um, – you know, he was not infallible. He did some work that I think is not particularly great and particularly some logo designs that seem uh, – that were rejected by the client and and for good reason it seems to me. Uh, they didn't seem – they either didn't seem kind of fully resolved or they just were plain wrong-headed in my opinion. You know, it's interesting to think whether or not, you know, this canonization of Rand that so many of us, whether we intend to or not, kind of participate in, and certainly which this exhibition is contributing to. Does making uh, uh, Paul Rand into St. Paul serve any larger purpose, or is it harmful in a way? I don't think it serves a great purpose, but I think um, there were many things he did that now retroactively seem like they were really pioneering. One thing he really hated, he railed against this and rallied against it in writing, in interviews, certainly in the classroom where I had him as a teacher. He hated focus groups. He hated market research. He hated groupthink. He would have hated post-it notes. He would have hated the kind of, you know, co-creation that is so much the kind of, you know, um, basis upon which so much work is getting done, certainly on the West Coast. And, I mean, you know, we, we chalk it up to his being crotchety and a curmudgeon, but, you know, he, it, it really flies in the face of what he created for himself, which is this very iconoclastic, singular-minded pursuit of one man trying to figure out the most germane, the most salient form a logo could take or an identity could take or an idea could take. And I think you can go to that exhibit, you can go again and again, and you'll always see something different. I certainly find something different every time I read his books. I yep. think you do too. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So we've been talking about Rand as a product or at least a protagonist on Madison Avenue in the 50s. By shorthand, we just call that the Mad Men era. And that's really a tribute to um, the work of uh, director Matthew Weiner. I've been um, just absolutely hypnotized by the show from the very beginning. You really have. And I think there's just something about the things they get right are so surprising and satisfying to me. I mean, I, I said at one point uh, uh, to my lovely wife, Dorothy, I said that, you know, w- The Sopranos for kind of dramatic climaxes of its episodes would have like, you know, titanic gun battles, you know, resulting in bloodshed. When uh, Mad Men wants to escalate the stakes and kind of have a huge climactic uh, scene, they always have it as a client presentation. It really is amazing. And if, like, part of your <laughs> life, uh, you know, part of your working life consists of presenting creative work to clients, to sort of see that being the uh, uh, pretext for people just kind of like bearing their souls or having near nervous breakdowns or creating kind of uh, cathartic moments where they have personal epiphanies. It really is amazing. The, the writing in it is just... Or having so a great. three martini lunch. Or having, yeah. And of course, you know, um, I think much was made, particularly at the beginning telling. of the inadvertent sexism and, and uh, alcoholism well, and all I was going to say, you know, you, um, maybe because you have had a life that has been professionally in New York for more years than I have, and so the, maybe I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's easier geographically to identify with it, too, maybe for you and as a man. The things that that stay with me with Mad Men are only slightly about the agency. 
they are much more about the kind of subtlety with which the social mores are drawn. And I think if I can kind of pull back from it for a minute, I was thinking about this recently, that that in a moment when we're so disconnected and working in our own little kind of closed feedback loops, I think something that plays out with such grace and poignancy, the subtlety of interpersonal relationships as they happened in that stilted moment in American history is enormously gratifying and occasionally really disturbing. Well, I think uh, one of the things that uh, has happened as we've watched is you really have seen this is one of those things where the characters actually do change and grow. And part of it is you see them reacting to the time that they're in. What happens on the show is that as uh, the time period has moved from the early 60s, mid-60s, and now coming up to the end of the decade, the moon landing basically happened in the final episode they showed uh, before the break that uh, separated the first half of the seventh season from the second half, which is about to begin. You know, I think you've sort of seen those characters change, and you've seen the relationship between them change change as well. Don Draper, who's, you know, lives this incredibly kind of trenchant, uh, you know, beautifully scripted life of secrecy and uh, sadness and disappointment and kind of this, this evolution of himself coming out through these stories. There's a wonderful story that, that is so often repeated by visual people, which is the story he tells about the carousel. Uh, he's making a presentation to what one assumes is Kodak. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. The idea of selling the artificial world through pictures is yeah. what, what you know, on some horrifying level, I suppose we all do. That presentation is probably, we have, we have yet to see what happen, will happen in the series, but probably to date it's the most memorable single scene. I used to drag Kodak carousel projectors around with me and give presentations to clients all the time way back when in the, uh, uh, in the 80s before the miracle of uh, PowerPoint and digital projectors and all that kind of stuff. When they first introduced cameras at the turn of the century, it was such a household name, it was a verb. Uh, I remember reading once that, that young girls, when, when the Browning camera was first introduced, used to say, let's go Kodaking out on the lawn. It was a thing you did <laughs> to go Kodaking. And somehow, you know, when everybody had very high hopes for them, uh, not least of whom were Kodak employees themselves. Um, and uh, there was a wonderful article, very, uh, uh, I think, well-written, uh, detailed article in the New York Times about a week ago that explained for those of our listeners who are in, interested in the, the sort of sad details of uh, what Kodak has become. Uh, they still are there. They serve sort of a niche film market now. But I think everybody uh, thought they, you know, they, they missed some opportunities. They, they developed software, hardware, sort of went after the parts of the photo market that um, maybe strategically were not uh, what was needed and, of course, competing with Apple and uh, with um, Microsoft and with a host of other companies, uh, it's, been, it's been a tough go for them. There's a, there's a film also, we'll put a link on our website um, to what's happened to Kodak. It's a very grim uh, scene to look at pictures that are of, uh, pictures of buildings that are being destroyed because 
there's nobody working in them. And, you know, the sort of what happens to a company that actually emerged from bankruptcy in 2013 and is trying to reinvent itself. It also has a really interesting scientific background where there were people and engineers and people looking at really at imaging and at, at light and at film production and at, at real source material, the raw material, if you will, of what photographers need. But in fact, we're living in a moment when, when we think of photography as being a purely digital medium. Uh, it was not always that way. It will not always be that way. But as a culture, uh, they really, uh, they fell from grace. And it's a very sad thing and, and a very poignant story um, uh, to read about. Yeah, and um, if you, it's so ironic, too, at a moment in time where we've never been so saturated by images, you know, that not just Kodak, but another great company, Polaroid, really are two companies that had a symbiotic relationship through most of the 20th century, dominated the world of photography, each in their own ways. And Polaroid particularly really uh, was a company that was just went from innovation to innovation and inspired people like uh, Steve Jobs in the way they were able to kind of, uh, you know, consistently reinvent themselves and kind of come up with these amazing uh, challenges. You know, how could you develop film inside a box while you're holding it in your hand the moment, a moment after you actually snap the shutter? You know, think about how hard that was in a world where photography was getting developed in dark rooms with uh, red light bulbs and pans of uh, chemicals, you know, and they managed to do it. And yet both companies somehow missed, you know, the signals that things were about to change, that in fact it was going to be uh, a whole nother medium, a whole nother, you know, kind of technology. There's this great book called Instant, the story of Polaroid by a great writer named Christopher Bananos, and he quotes from, I think it might have been a, a promotional film that Dr. Land, the head of Polaroid, made uh, back in 1970. And Land is quoted as predicting a future of photography that would be, quote, a camera that you would use as often as your pencil or your eyeglasses. It would be effortless. You point, shoot, see. Nothing mechanical would come between you and the image you wanted. The gesture would be as simple as taking a wallet out of your breast pocket, holding it up, and pressing a button. Unbelievable. Isn't that Unbelievable. Eerie? He said, so what year was that? 1970. So basically, oh what he's describing is um, a device that, everyone you know in the developed world now takes for granted and in fact that everyone is um constantly enthralled to and that has really redefined image culture as we live it today unbelievable that is really astonishing full disclosure uh and maybe a way to tie a bow around our conversation today we uh at my firm pentagram uh just designed something that's uh a commissioned homage to mad men and its seven seasons uh the network asked us to come up with an idea for a monument to Mad Men that we could erect somewhere in New York. Could and there I think people... be a more perfect Michael Beirut project than <laughs> yeah, the no, network wait, coming? On. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop. <laughs> Hold the presses. They came I'm waiting to you all and... my life for this. So me, <laughs> There's me nothing my... left to live for. <laughs> me and two of my partners, Emily Oberman and um, Lorenzo Apicella, collaborated in uh, – they, they were teasing it as a sculpture, but actually, they're picture, people were picturing, uh, you know, some sort of a monumental marble bust of uh, Don Draper and Peggy Olson and Joan Holloway and everyone. Uh, mostly but instead, of Joan we, Holloway, I think. What we, what we did Joan. instead was a um, uh, <laughs> what we did instead was a bench that's set 
in the plaza in front of the Time Life building where Sterling Cooper has had its fictional offices. And uh, the bench is a very kind of clean design, and the back of the bench uh, at the top of it turns into the silhouette of uh, Don Draper that's familiar from the opening credits of the show by Imaginary Forces. And um, really, uh, inadvertently, or maybe vertently, we um, uh, were designing what uh, some website described after it debuted as being the most Instagrammed bench in New York City, because this is basically um, designed for photo ops, like, you know, galore, you know, selfies with uh, Don Draper, and kind of, you can sit in that title sequence now. So it's, a, I think it's a, it's a handsome, beautifully made bench, but it's uh, going to be seen by many people uh, in real life, but will have an afterlife through the magic of the image culture that uh, Edwin Land predicted back in 1970, the year that the show basically ended. That'll really sustain it going into the future. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find links there to the things we discussed during the show, including Mad Men, Polaroid, Kodak, and Paul Rand. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of the show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on SoundCloud, on iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thank you to MailChimp for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you next time.